On this edition of The Golf Guy, we have a conversation with a longtime friend, Peter Nanula, who uh, was my teammate in um, college on our golf team. And Peter has been involved in the golf industry for a while. Um, His first uh, extended experience with it was building up the Arnold Palmer Golf Management Company, uh, which he has some wonderful um, memories of, and we'll talk a little about that in his um, interactions with Arnold Palmer and Winnie Palmer. And uh, uh, for the last 10 years or so, he has been CEO of Concert Golf Partners, which is an owner-operator of upscale private clubs, um, and we'll talk about that and what that is like and the role that they play and um, where he sees that going. So upcoming, Peter Nanula, CEO of Concert Golf Partners. Welcome to another edition of The Golf Guy, and I am so pleased to have an old friend with us today, um, old going back to um, our college days together, uh, Peter Nanula, um, of, uh, who is uh, CEO of Concert Golf Partners. But um, uh, before we sort of get to the present, um, I want to sort of introduce him a little bit and talk a little bit about the past. So, Peter, thank you for joining us today. And yeah, welcome. thanks for having me, Larry. No, it's going to be fun. Um, so, um, Peter and I um, uh, met um, back in college. We were both on the golf team at Harvard. Um, and, um, you know, oddly enough, our home club was the country club, which we're going to be visiting with the U S open later this year. Um, Peter, maybe just talk a little bit, um, kind of how you got into the game and, and played and stuff like that, uh, that, that led you to sort of playing in college. Yeah. All I remember is I was behind you in the queue on the golf team. <laughs> Cause I think you, you probably had your scores counted in a lot more of the matches than I ever did, <laughs> but that sure was fun. I had no clue by the way, that when you show up on the golf team, you go out to this place in Brookline mass at the country club. And it's one of the hallowed institutions in golf. Absolutely. And then it had dawned on me later on that this was quite a lucky experience to have had at that age. Right. So you grew up, what, in Tampa, right? Is where so I grew in... up West Coast, but then I was in Tampa and I, I learned to play golf and I was like 12. My mom used to drop me off on the driving range when she would play with the ladies in Northern California. And I would just ah. hit shag bags full of balls. <laughs> wow. And, and then uh, high school, a little bit of golf team, nothing too serious. And then I go up to Harvard. I meet you and the guys, and I, w- I decided to walk on. And luckily, we weren't Wake Forest or UCLA. No, or far from it. So, far from right? it. Right. <laughs> so I, I had to keep up with Larry Stein and a few guys, but <laughs> it was really fun. That was quite a fun experience for me. But anyway, yeah. So there was that, and and there's some other funny stories in there. We'll decide are are, are PG rated. <laughs> uh, and then after that, Larry, where it ended up was. Um, I became a lawyer briefly, as you know, right. um, for a couple of years and then moved over onto the private equity side. And it was there that golf came back for me. Um, some people came into our offices at Warburg Pincus looking for money to do golf club roll-ups like Club Corp and American Golf had done. And they said, hey, I think Peter played college golf. Let's <laughs> give it to him. 
course, I didn't know a damn thing about the business at that point. But it was it was that was the introduction to, to the golf business side. Gotcha. So we uh, studied it then. And so and so from there, um, you got involved, if I'm remembering right, with the Arnold Palmer Golf Management Company, right? Yeah, I left Warburg Pincus. My dad and my brother were appalled. Why are you quitting a great <laughs> job at an incredible firm to go buy some little company in the golf business? And so it turned out to be great because, as you know, Arnold Palmer is one of the best human beings of all time. And his sure. wife, Winnie, right. left a big imprint on me and my wife, just the most incredible. Yes, let's talk, let's talk about that. So we actually I mean, I know, of course, that you were with the with him in the golf management, but I don't think we ever really have talked about what he was like. Um, and that yeah. must have been just an incredible experience incredible. for you to get to know them. Yeah, I was 29 or 30, so I was pretty young. And I uh, cold called his number two guy and he said, yeah, are been thinking about what to do with the business? Anyway, Peter, why, why don't you come meet us? And okay, meet us at Muirfield Village at Jack's tournament. Uh, you know, this is 1993, Larry. Right. And I show up in this condo. Arnie, of course, is the honoree of the Memorial Tournament. Oh, that wow. Year. Wow. And it's Arnold Palmer, you know, legend. I, you know, I couldn't even tie my shoes that morning thinking about it. His wife, Winnie, uh, Dick Ferris, who was the CEO of Hertz or, right. or United Airlines or something. Right. Uh, Actually, Russ both. Meyer. So it's, it's funny. Just, just, so, so just, yeah, two seconds on Dick Ferris, right? Because ultimately, he ends up in a second or third act as one of the owners of Pebble Beach, which is yes. with, with Arnold. But, uh, but that was at the point in time where he's trying to turn United into a travel colossus. Yes. So they, it was Allegis for about five minutes Precisely. before they changed Good the memory. name back. Right. So he's Good there memory. too. So you got so he's in the room and Russ Meyer, the CEO of Cessna. And so what I learned was Arnie surrounded himself with a few wise men. Because people are always coming at him for business, like IMG. So I met all those people. Winnie cooks up this super high cholesterol breakfast. And I'm sitting there with these wise men. And I'm this 30-year-old whippersnapper guy. And I thought, wow, I just got to pinch myself. But for the next uh, seven or eight years, we lived downstairs from the Palmers at Bay Hill in Orlando. We were members of Bay Hill. I would go see Arnie and his little shack garage with his vice with like 500 clubs and he was always grinding them and putting lead tape on the back and messing around he just loved doing that and i would go chat with him and he was he and his wife were amazing the one story that sticks with me and my wife is we're down there we have our first child right? we're in okay. our early 30s yeah and uh, our daughter is born at the arnold and winnie palmer hospital for children in orlando and who calls the room at three o'clock in the morning, Winnie Palmer checking on my wife to see if she's okay. Oh, and I wow. thought, okay, wow. these people are a different level of, you know, humanity and, you know, generosity of spirit because some meaningless 30 year olds that they just met are having a kid. They set us up in a room and she gets up in the morning to call and check on us. And wow. That's amazing. You know, like think about the times in your life where you like, extended yourself like that with people and these people had met kings presidents been around the world right and they were still behaving like that that's so, so awesome that's that was awesome. the kind of stuff that rubbed off on us for a bunch of years with them wow and so and you're living right there at bay hill all yeah. those years so you're seeing him all the time right he's the, the king of that place and and 
I did. I only played with him a couple times. I remember going out. I was coming in on number eight on Bay Hill. Have you ever played Bay Hill? I haven't. I've seen it on TV, of course, many years, but I've actually never played it. Well, you you do you play more of a right to left shot? I think you would like Bay Hill because <laughs> I have a natural draw. Right, right. And he loved that, and so he designed a lot of his courses like that. Whereas Jack wanted the long, right, carry, the fade, right, fade, and the fade, right, right. exactly. Bay Hill plays to your advantage if you have a draw. And I came in on number eight, one of my favorite holes, and Arnie pulls up to watch us hit our approach shots over the water on eight. And of course, I thought I know this guy by now, but I haven't really played with him before. This isn't going to affect me. You know, I'm a six handicapper or something. I literally, my knees were shaking and I just chili dipped it into the water. Right? <laughs> Amazing. What a great guy. That's so yeah, lived, awesome. lived near him, ran the business, spent a bunch of time. I flew around with him to a few clubs on events. He flew his helicopter once with me, wow. which, was, which was fun. So I know, of course, he's a famous pilot, you know, jet pilot. So he flew helicopters as well. He wow. always would fly a Cessna Citation 10 around. He always got the first model off the line when, when Cessna would come out with a new jet. Wow. wow. And then helicopter, I had no idea he could do that. He took us around on a short hop somewhere and he just he just loved that stuff. And and like you've heard, he was the kind of guy like I've heard of only a few politicians where when you meet him and there's a bunch of other people in the room, you think literally you're the only person in the room that matters. That and that's know, a hard that is- thing to do. It is a hard thing. And that it's, it's wonderful. You said that, cause that is exactly what I've, I, I never, I mean, I never really met him. I will, you know, my, my only brushes with him and that's all they were, were, um, you know, I grew up in, in West Hartford in Connecticut and the GHO, the greater Hartford open was our tournament. And he would occasionally come to it. And I always remember, you know, I remember following him around and I remember this one whole, he hit it next to the green. I ran down there and I'm like right, really close to him. And he looks at me, he says, son, just don't move while I'm playing this shot. <laughs> and so that's my only brush with Arnold Palmer. But, um, but what I, what you just said about him is what everyone has always said that he made you feel like you were the only one in the room. And that's a special quality, right? Amazing guy. Yeah. Yeah. Great people. So, so talk, so were they, so, so you were there for seven, eight years and talk about kind of what type of stuff you were doing exactly for them in, 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 in terms of the yeah. golf course stuff. So he had his golf course design business, as you know, he and Nicholas and Fazio and others at that time were the leaders. Right. And, you know, so he would make some big design fees and then some percentage of his clients would say, what are we going to do with this golf club now after you guys have cut the ribbon and you flew off in your Cessna citation? <laughs> and so some of Arnie's team of people said, Arnie, why don't we build a golf management business? Cause some portion of those people need help running the club after. So the business that I had bought from him and IMG was his golf management company, which was offering management on a fee for service basis on a small scale, like what Troon is the leader in today. So they had 15 or 20 courses and clubs with fees to manage those clubs. And that was the platform that I acquired. And then, of course, I moved it in the direction of ownership. And he liked that idea. He wanted us to be able to own and operate nicer clubs. I brought capital to it. And so we moved it into that direction. Uh, So for, yeah, for about seven or eight years, we did that. He was busy playing still 
he had so many endorsements. He had so many uh, hands in so many other businesses. He didn't spend a lot of hands-on time doing this, but he cared a lot about his name brand sure, and, he, and quality. Uh, and he wanted to make sure we were, you know, we had a, a strong reputation in the industry. But other than that, it was me, investors, and a whole team of people that ended up buying about 30 private clubs and public golf courses back in the 90s including Presidio Golf Course, which I can almost see from here in, in my office here in San Francisco and all over the country, public and private. Gotcha. And so what was the exit then for that after that? Well, the exit was it kind of happened in two stages about late through it. We, we sold to a private equity group and it, and it worked out pretty well. And they asked me to stay on and I did. That latter phase wasn't as fun. So I stepped off. That company still exists today. Uh, Arnold Palmer Golf Management still exists with a company called Century Golf, okay. which some of the old team is still there. Uh, Pete Uberoff yeah, has of been course. an investor yeah. in that. Yeah, you're, yet another one. I think I think the four who own Pebble Beach, we're, gonna, we're hitting them one by one. We're hitting so them it's, all. It's, we got to get to we got We got Clint. <laughs> we got Arnie. We've got Dick Ferris, Ferris. and Peter Uberoff. Exactly. So, so Pete has been involved in that. And you know Jim Hinckley who was yeah. a longtime club corp guy and now right. American golf. So anyway, they've built a whole business for the next 20 years there. Um, but I left, went back to doing private equity stuff for almost a decade. And then the recession happened. Okay. So, yeah. So let's talk about that. So we were back doing typical private equity stuff and, you know, yeah. So, so just to keep the timeline here. So the Arnold Palmer's like 93, 93 maybe to 2000. 2000. Right. Yeah. So then you're you're back doing private equity. We we get the great recession, 2008, 2009. And so um, talk about sort of what 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 that ended up uh, impacting your career and how you got from back in private equity to sort of, you know, back over to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the great recession affected all of us. I'm sure you and yeah, all your clients and all your yeah. transaction activity and all that. And people started calling me saying, boy, the golf industry is in trouble. The lenders are all gone because there were only a few lenders that would lend you and me money to buy a golf course in the industry for the longest time. Just a tricky business to underwrite. Right. They they left. Uh, they took some losses and left. No more loans available to buy a golf course, which is kind of interesting. And the equity players, the few of them that have ever been in it, you know, beyond me, you, and five of our friends putting some money in and getting a loan, there really have never been a lot of people who had aggregated institutional size capital to really do this at scale, you know, Club Corp. And right. now there's a few of, few of us doing it. But at that time, there was nobody. And, and, and a couple people like Jeff Wilson is a broker at CBRE. He's been doing brokerage of golf clubs for 30 plus years. I talked to a few of my old friends like that. And they said, Peter, there's nobody home. And there's some great clubs being sold for pennies on the dollar. And this industry needs capital. And you always had access to capital. You should take a look. So anyway, so I made a few calls and it was true. Um, and so I got back in. And so I, I you know, bought one club with a partner. And then we bought another one and the phone started to ring and we started to raise small funds to buy more clubs. And so there, there was the beginning of concert golf. So we kind of, me and my new partner who was with me at Arnold Palmer said, let's focus on private clubs, right? So 
we'll, we'll talk about Brentwood Country Club during the course of this conversation, but like the business model of a private club, like you're, you're used to, is a bunch of families that have signed, written a decent sized check and signed basically a subscription agreement to join three to 500 other families in a lifestyle at a club and to play golf together, some tennis, swim, socialize. And that is a more recurring revenue, stickier kind of a business model than a public golf course where, hey, the weather's good, the economy's good, everyone wants to drop 500 bucks on a round of pebble. Let's go down there, Larry. And then the recession <laughs> hits and the rounds come down and the revenues come down and the profits come down and it's more of a volatile existence. Sure. It's a much bigger part of our industry, public golf courses, but private clubs are a more stable stickier kind of business. And we decided to focus this time just on the private clubs. Makes sense. So, um, and, and, and again, just to contrast that you, you alluded to this earlier when you're talking about what you did at Arnold Palmer, but you guys are owning these clubs now at concert golf, like you started right. to do it with the Arnold Palmer company, as opposed to people probably who are listening to this, if there's one name, they probably know it's true in golf because it's so big the true golfs of the world are managers for fees and you're the owner and, and uh, diff different model. Right. Precisely two separate segments of the industry. And then the Troon, Troon is the big uh, giant of the management business for fees. And then there's Kemper. Right. Uh, kind of number two, there was Billy Casper. There's Bobby Jones links. There's a lot of major golf pro names involved. There's, there are dozens of management companies who for 150 to 250,000 a year will help your board at a member-owned club or the owner, if it's a real estate developer, manage the club, staff it, accounting, back office, training, you know, reporting on the financials every month to the owner who's absentee or needs help. Uh, right. And so that is a business that a ton of golf courses and country clubs need. So you could see why Troon and these other companies have been so successful. But what they don't do is they don't provide capital. Right? Right. They don't have capital generally. So our segment of the business, which Club Corp kind of invented way back in 1958, is to say, hey, not only do we bring professional management to your club, but we also have lots of capital. So in order to fix up your clubhouse, redo your bunkers and greens every few years and all the things that go wrong or need, need doing instead of passing the hat amongst 300 families and saying, can everyone please pay this special assessment of five, 10, 20 grand. And most people say, sure, no problem at Brentwood, but at most clubs in America, that self-funding model is very difficult because yeah. even if 70% of the people say, sure, how much you need, if 30% of the people vote no or don't want to do it, you're looking at a situation where the club goes and spends five or $10 million and 50 people quit. So right. your dues just dropped. Your, your membership just shrunk. And everyone's wondering, what did we just do? Well, I hope we get 50 new members because of all the nice improvements we just made. And more often than not, it doesn't really quite work out that way. So enter Club Corp 70 years ago us and a couple other people who say, why don't we pay for everything? We'll keep your dues at 650 a month or a thousand a month or whatever it is. We'll fix everything, make it wonderful. And you don't have to have all these committees. 
you don't have to have a board of lawyers and doctors and people like yourself who spend all this time trying to govern a club that most of you didn't spend your lives learning about, didn't go to 50 golf conferences or buy fleets of golf equipment. You're just like on the board of your kid's school or the board of your church. You're just trying to help out. But nobody really knows anything about the business that you're on the board of. Right. Why don't we do that for you? Right. (laughs) No, that makes perfect sense. I want to talk, I want to get into kind of what I think can only imagine being the fascinating human dynamics of this. But before we dive into that, um, just talk about the size of the market. So, you know, I, and I don't even know the numbers, but, you know, however many private clubs there are in the country, I mean, you guys must have thought about, you know, there's going to be some segment you know, the, the elites or whatever that, you know, are just fine. And, you know, I'm sure that's a minority. And then you must have, you know, a majority of the balance. And again, I have no idea what the percentage of numbers are that, you know, are potential candidates for what you guys do, right? Am I thinking about yeah, that right? You're thinking about that right. So here's the big high level numbers. There are 14,000 golf facilities in America. 10,000 of them are public. You and I can go tee it up at Pebble. You and I can go to Rancho Park <laughs> off of Pico. Right. You and I can go to everywhere in between and just tee it up for whatever the green fee is. That's 10,000 golf facilities. The other 4,000 are private clubs. You've got to be a member, right? And of those private clubs, 4,000, 3,300 of them, more than 80% are member-owned clubs like your club, right, or Bay Hill or what have you. And you've got to pay an initiation fee and dues, right? But they are 80% of them are member-owned equity clubs, self-governing, self-funding, member-owned clubs, right? So that's the market we're in. It's right. pretty big. People say it's a 20 or $25 billion a year revenue industry, and Club Corp does over a billion in revenue. Wow. And they're the big kahuna. Wow. But that just tells you if they have 120 clubs and we have 25 and a few other people have 10, like professional owners of private clubs have maybe 200, 250 out of 4,000 private clubs. So it's mostly owned by the members or a real estate developer who's still selling homes or some privately owned people. And okay. So if we take those numbers, um, so 3,300 that are member owned, um, what's your sense of kind of how that breaks down in terms of, um, and again, I'm, I'll just use this term, but you know, the elites that don't yeah. you necessarily need it. And then the up balance that are possible candidates. Do you have a yeah, sense we, on we that? Think, yeah, we do. We have, we have a whole database of this. Uh, we think your club Brentwood in, in your city, for example, LACC, uh, Hillcrest go down the list are among about 800 clubs in America out of 3,300 member owned that will never need anybody's capital or anybody's help, because you'll always have a big wait list. You'll always have the ability to assess your members for whatever needs there are. And everyone will pay gladly because they don't want to lose their slot at Brentwood Country Club, right? That's the dividing line. Right. Elite clubs that will always have wait lists and be able to self-fund through good times and bad. The bot, they're not bottom. The other 2,500 clubs in America, many of which are really nice clubs that you and I have played at, Yes, and they I, may yeah, have yeah. been designed by the major architects. They've hosted major tournaments, but they just don't have that special thing where they 
nucleus of the most affluent business people, what have you, are there and have been there for 50 or 100 years. And so they're, when, when they go to send out a five or $10,000 assessment bill, some portion of those people don't want to pay it, even though there's a lot of affluence, or they're not full to a wait list. And so they don't have that sort of virtuous cycle that Grant Wood right. has. Right. So tw- the other 2,500 don't have an easy self-funding model. And right. our target market is probably the top thousand of those. The bottom thousand or 1,500 of those may be just smaller clubs in smaller towns that are not quite big enough for, for somebody like us. But there's probably a thousand of them in there that every three to five years has a capital need or a governance challenge around the board table. If you've been in your boardroom, right. you have some right. very well-intentioned people. Yes. But sometimes there are egos and agendas that are not exactly according to. Well, and, 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 and again, I just want to highlight, you mentioned it, that there's that, but there's also the lack of expertise too. Correct. Everyone's a part-time volunteer that's pitching in right. very nobly. And, and I love these, like you said, the interpersonal dynamics are probably the most fun part of my job is you get to meet a Larry Stein or amazing people at all these clubs that have their own histories with golf. They are billionaires. They build incredible businesses. They do philanthropic things. And these are, you're interested in golf like I am. These are fascinating people all over the country. And you get to walk into a boardroom and get to know them to talk about one of the most cherished parts of their lives where they've raised their kids. Their daughter got married there and they've been there for 37 years and they built all the homes there. And you're in Des Moines or Raleigh or Boston, and you're part of that whole conversation with them. It's fascinating. I, I bet it is. So let's talk about that. So how do you sort of typically, uh, what's your typical entry mechanism into one of these clubs? Is there somebody reaching out to you because someone on the board sort of says, gee, you know, we're really struggling, you know, the capital raising and everything we, you know, we should consider someone like this or, you know, how, how do you typically sort of enter into? Yeah. Um, Most of the time, not, I think maybe 10% of the time we'll get a call from somebody who listened to a podcast like this that <laughs> I did, or read an article right? and they might email or pick up the phone. Mostly not. Mostly what you find is think about your club. You've been a lawyer, you've had a busy life, and you volunteered to help on the board of your club. And you're not spending the bulk of your life thinking about that. You're thinking about being a tax lawyer all week right, long, right? right? And so just getting a hold of you is hard because you probably tell the people at your club, please don't give out my personal information, right? right? Like I'm a right. board member. This is a private thing. Right. So mostly what happens is we email, call, and try to get a hold of people. Uh, that are on the board of this club. Sometimes it's a referral. Larry knows somebody at some other club that he played in the member guest. Or I know a club where I used to live in Connecticut, where I grew up, where my family's from. And I've heard that they want to do a clubhouse remodel and the members aren't super bullish about paying for it. You want me to introduce you to my friend who's the current treasurer of the board. It's a lot of that kind of networking and cold calling, frankly. And then we get introduced to somebody, let's say it's you, and you're on the board of your club. And we say, hey, here's what we do. And we ask you about the nuances of your club dynamics. And we might do a Zoom like this. We might go through some of what we do and have done for other clubs. Right. Normally, people are pretty skeptical. 
Hey, our club's been member owned for 112 yeah, years. Yeah, and this is what I want. This is exactly what I want to get into because there's got to be ruffled feathers here at some level, right? I mean, these Big are time. people who are equity owners of a club, you know, and they're going to sort of have this whole thing recapitalized on them. And, you know, part of them intellectually, you know, may acknowledge the incredible value you bring, but emotionally, it's got to be a tough thing, right? And you have to grapple Correct. with that. Correct. Yeah. And, and maybe half of our clubs had some debt or had some capital uh, they wanted to do at their club and, and they know they needed help. The other half were doing fine. Thank you. Had no debt. They were doing fine. But, you know, pick nine or 12 board members. The majority of them volunteered for board service, probably out of a more personal, emotional kind of reason for doing it. Right. But it, some portion of them, I would say, are more objective, more rational. It's an Ernst & Young partner or somebody like yourself who's trying to think about this as like a business. Right. How is this club going to sustain itself for the next 100 years? And when I watch what's going on at my club, I see politics. I see inability to stick to a strategic plan for more than 15 minutes. I see inability to self-fund all these improvements on a regular basis. Unless times are good and then we spend a bunch. And then times are bad and we do deferred maintenance for six years. And this doesn't seem sustainable. And so the person will hear you out and say, you know, this is kind of interesting. Let's get a couple of other executive committee members. We're not committing to anything, but we'll do a Zoom and learn more about this or have you come into our board and explain how it works. Still hesitancy. And then what tends to happen is I'll introduce them to two or three other board presidents of other clubs like theirs. And that's kind of when the, light goes on. Oh, that club is very similar to ours or nicer. That club was a Nicholas signature design, great track that hosted a PGA championship. That club has more affluence and homes worth millions of dollars all around it. And they did it and they couldn't be happier. And the board president tells them, all of my members were skeptical. My board didn't want to think about ever quote unquote, losing control of our club. But once we heard about it and talked to a few other boards, ah, life is better on the other side. There's nothing to fear here. Let's negotiate some really good terms to protect our members. And all of the other people at these other clubs are thrilled they did it and wish they'd have done it 10 years ago. There must be something here we need to investigate further. And then they go down the track and say, this sounds too good to be true. And the member votes to ratify. 93, 95, 90, wow. 100%. Wow. Every time. We've never wow. had a vote less than 90%, Larry. That's amazing. And the board member's biggest fear is, hey, I think this sounds kind of smart, but what if the members go crazy on the board for even bringing this up? And the vote's always over 90%. Wow. That's, that's surprising. That's, very. I mean, that's, that's, those are impressive numbers. So, so, so let, let's keep, kind of going through this so you you take oh you, you go in for a club they've they've agreed the you win the vote what happens how do you sort of how does the management i mean i guess i'm interested in two facets and you can answer them any way you want i mean one is sort of how does the management uh work going forward you know in terms of there being some sort of member yeah. advisory board and stuff yeah and then how's the financial aspect works i mean are you guys now 
setting the dues and stuff like yep. that. And, you know, so I, you can take it in any order you want, but I'm just sort of yeah. curious how all that works. No, the, one of the things that comes up every time with the board early on and the members is, will we lose our voice? Right. Because right now we have 13 committees and we have a rotating board and three people right. roll off every year and all of that. Here's our bylaws and we've reviewed all that with them. And they're worried about that. We always form a member advisory board, exactly what you said. And so we will pick five to seven of your members, women, men, old guys, young guys, you know, low handicappers like you, you know, regular old guys, tennis people, pool people. We want to get a broad cross section of your membership who are going to be constructive, not just yes people, but what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And after we finish the pool project, what do you guys think we want to be doing next? Like sort of some of the role you serve on the board of your club now, but what we pull away is you shouldn't be doing financial. Like we have $250 million. You don't need to be passing the hat to the members. Like have you ever been to a hotel and when you were downstairs, they asked you if you'd kick in five grand for the new spa. Like they don't (laughs) do that. Right. It's stupid. So And then the governance, like why are a bunch of part-time volunteer doctors and lawyers and business people trying to manage this thing that nobody does for a living? We get rid of all that, but the voice of the membership part, we still want, we want some people that will speak for the other families. Our general manager will send out emails just like yours does. But if I've got the ear of a few of the most respected members of the club, who are in general very thrilled about what we're doing, but they know they can pick up the phone on a Saturday, call my cell phone and say, Peter, we love Richard, the GM. He's been fantastic, but he's got a blind spot about the way they're mowing the, the, the greens and, and the tea boxes. And we keep on him about it. He said, they're just not doing it. And then bingo, I hang up. I know Larry. Larry is out for the greater good of the club. He's not some self-interested guy like there's 3% at every club that are loud and whiny. <laughs> He's not one of those people. If Larry called, it's because 30 people have been talking about this, and they are some of our best, most loyal members who care right. about the greater good. Right. So I hang up the phone. I'm on the phone with our head of agronomy. That thing is getting fixed within the hour. So they know there's a pipeline to us to attend to their issues. And they say that over and over again. Our people do a great job of responding when we screw things up. But in general, we know how to run a club better than they did before. And so things are getting better and better all the time. So the GM you guys put in place after you. No, we keep yours. Oh, you keep ours. You just work with them. Okay. We don't have anybody in LA. We need your team. So we rehire your whole staff. Okay. We need them. Now. Gotcha. Do we have the normal turnover in the club industry? Probably. Does every single employee of yours want to work for a company who's holding people more accountable, raising the bar, visiting more like an absentee board that isn't really in the business kind of doesn't know what you're doing every day? A hundred percent. I mean, the GM at at any private club is really, um, I mean, it, it is kind of like a CEO and a board but it's even more remote. It's, I mean, you, you, you analyze it to, you know, like a charity or something, which is really spot on. I mean, I would almost call it kind of um, like our friends at the USGA. I mean, the executive director at the USGA, I mean, Mike Davis for any years now, Mike Wan, I mean, he's really the guy, I mean, you know, the board, 
you know, Stu Francis from Evercore's, you know, oh, yeah. running it for a I couple of years. You know, I'm sure yeah. you know him, you know, and uh, Fred Perpall is going to be taking over for Stu as someone I know a little bit because I have some friends at Vincent and Elkins in Dallas who they all belong to Trinity Forest, which I got to play one of these days. But, nice. you know, so but and those are all wonderful folks who are tremendously successful, obviously, Stu and banking and fred has been ceo of his company in dallas for 25 years but they don't know anything about golf really i mean you know they know something i mean they love the game but i mean you know but but it's sort of like the executive directors the guy and it's kind of similar at these clubs i mean i don't know how to i'm not a hospitality guy i mean i don't know any of this stuff so it's really sort of the gm so so it's a good point i mean they're kind of yes they're being managed by a board but it's got to be different when you guys come in, because you have expertise in all these areas. Exactly. So we're doing this now. We just took over a club in Charlotte, a really high end, one of the nicest clubs in Charlotte. Del Curry's a member there. And oh, wow. A bunch of the CEOs in Charlotte are members yeah. there and have these incredible homes. And it's a Nicholas Signature great club. The developer handed over to us because he thought we would be the best successor and take good care of it. The GM and the whole staff stayed and they now have new leadership and we have operations people food and beverage people agronomy people who are on the phone with them and they're on group calls with our other people and they're getting much more support as well as accountability both most employees love that we have capital you think we need to put in a new water slide by the pool it's thursday get bids Friday and put it in on Monday. Like there's none of this BS about having committee meetings three weeks from Thursday and seeing if we can raise the money at the club. Just do it. If it's good for our members, just do it. And they love that. They love not having 42 committee meetings a year. (laughs) There's a small fraction of them who realize we are watching all the time and we've done this 50 times before and they don't love that. And so they might go to another equity club because- Yeah, maybe it's perceived as a more elite club. Mostly, I think it's because it's easier. It's less accountability. Less accountability, uh, for right? sure. Yeah. It's just different. It's just it's different. different. Yeah. But mostly, yeah. we keep all the staff, and we love them, and, and we couldn't build our business without the staff, obviously. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, so what I, I, I think I saw something, if I didn't, I'm not mistaken on the website about some reciprocal privileges. Yes. That, so what, what is, what do I, if, I, if I'm one of your 30, 25, 30 clubs um, that you, um, you guys have taken over sort of what, what's, what do I get on that? If I'm a member of one of those clubs? In terms yeah. So that's one of the other benefits. Um, you know, the club is going to be professionally managed and always have capital and all of that and not have rotating boards and politics and things. Um, But the other cool benefit is we have a reciprocal program. You automatically are a free member of all of our clubs. So you look on our map on our website. If you're in any of those towns on business or pleasure, you just ask your golf pro at your home club. Hey, I'm going to be down in Boca and, you know, I'd love to tee it up at, you know, Fountains Country Club or what have you. That's one of the concert golf clubs, and he'll just get you out, and you don't have to pay anything. You're you're part of our network. I mean, obviously, if you eat and drink and right, do other right, things right, there, right. it just shows up on your bill. So that part's the free layer, but we only have 25 clubs. Then we have about 500 clubs. All the TPCs. If you've ever heard of the Executive Golfer Collection, yes, about 115 clubs. Yeah. 
uh, Pacific Links as a whole group of clubs. We've joined a bunch of networks on behalf of our members so that they can go play 500 other clubs. And at those, like TPC, I think it's like 50% off, right? So you instead of paying the rack rate at TPC Sawgrass, if you happen to be going to Jacksonville, you would pay 50 off, which is nice. Yeah. And so I, I would say 10 to 20% of our membership loves that because they are traveling, bring their sticks kind of people. And the other 80% don't really do that much in their lives, but it, it sounds pretty good. And they might rarely take advantage of that when they go visiting relatives and what have you. Right. No, that makes sense. And I mean, I'm just, just thinking about this as I'm listening to you in terms of the advantages. I mean, you know, you've got 25, 30 clubs, you've got not only the expertise, but you've got you know, certainly more purchasing power on some yes. of this stuff than, than if I'm just one club. I mean, that's yes. got to be an advantage you bring to the table as well. We save a bunch of money on that because we're buying in bulk. We don't have debt on the club like cl most clubs do. So they have a big loan from all the improvements they made four years ago, and they still have six million bucks of debt. And the, and the, the, the payments are choking them, right. right? That goes away when we come in. Um, what else? Purchasing power helps. The fact that we do this at 25 clubs, our GMs and our superintendent and our head pro and everyone, they're on the phone with their peers at 25 other clubs getting best practices. They're right. not alone on an island at one club, just dealing with the politics of their nine board members and, and living in that little world. They're part of a system. And some of our people started out, obviously, as an assistant you know, pro, and now they're head pro regional assistant a greenskeeper and now they're like a regional agronomist flying around the country doing three or four clubs so there's upward mobility for people's careers so there's a lot of opportunity in a company like ours for people who want to grow their career and go and that's how i started i didn't tell that part of the story yeah Before please go, yeah you, let's go talk go ahead i was in tampa and high school one summer my dad said you got to get a summer job like you can't just be sitting around here underfoot probably like you and i did with our yeah, kids yeah, right? yeah yeah and so i went down we lived on a, on a golf course in tampa florida and i went down to the country club and i worked in the maintenance yard yeah unskilled labor i think i made like four bucks an hour Wait, what were you doing like mowing greens and stuff or not no way would they trust a 50 wouldn't trust you with that okay that with expensive equipment so you know like edging you're like edging sand traps with an edger. You're leaf blowing. You're doing all the unskilled labor for some ridiculously low wage. But the hilarious part of that story is I got a call last year. Skip, he calls me up. Peter, I hear you're kind of a big shot in the golf industry. You remember me? Skip? Skip was the superintendent at Feather Sound Country Club in Clearwater, Florida, where I worked as a 15-year-old kid for my first job. Still the superintendent at that club. Oh, my God. After <laughs> all these years, years? 40 years later, he remembered me. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, but we all got our start in golf somewhere. <laughs> That's incredible. incredible. That's impressive longevity at one place. Yeah, right? I don't know how he did it. Yeah, great, great guy. But anyway, we all have our, our origin stories in golf. No, that, that, that's awesome. So, so where do you, so, and, and I looked through the, you know, apropos of what you said a little while ago, I looked through your list of clubs. I mean, they are some notable clubs. I mean, Westlake in Augusta, I've actually played. It's, a, oh, have I, you? I, oh, I loved it. Yeah. 
Um, I was dead, you know, I had a bucket list uh, event um, six years ago, I got to go to the Masters. Nice. And it was kind of a whole trip. And we went and brought our sticks and we went to the third and fourth rounds. But, you know, we got there earlier in the week, and we actually played a couple of rounds at the at, at West, like we were staying at a house that wasn't too far from there. Lovely yeah. club, really nice. nice. Um, Blue Hill, I know a little bit, I had a, a, a great uncle who lived in um, Newton Mass who belonged there. I mean, nice. this is many, many years ago. Um, there's some notable clubs. I mean, it's a good list. It's a good roster. Some good clubs. Yeah. We have a bunch of Nicholas signatures, Palmer's, Fazio's, you name it. Anytime you want to go to any of them, you've got the map. We'll, <laughs> we'll take care of you. But we're always looking for more. So as you look ahead, we're trying to find board members at private clubs who know that they have some of these same systemic issues that we've talked about and they just want to learn about what this is like. And I'll talk right. to them and I'll put them on the phone with board members of other clubs or have them go to our other clubs and just see what life is like. Cause I think there are some negative stories out there, Larry. I got in the business years ago and people would talk about golf management companies. Oh, it's terrible. And I think there were some horror stories whether it was American golf in the old days in public golf, or maybe some of the club corp stuff, even though they have Firestone and, you know, you know, some really nice ones. There've been some negative stories about golf management companies versus we're a member owned equity club, or we have a developer who owns our club. And I think that's a natural evolution of any industry. Now I think the industry is evolving where it's true. There did used to be some of that. And you need to pick and choose, just like you're going to go hire a lawyer and you interview Latham and Watkins and three other people. And you learn from references. Larry's an excellent guy. He's going to solve your tax issues. And, and everyone we talk to says great things about him. Well, go check out Concert Golf. Maybe go check out Club Corp or other people. Visit some of their clubs. Talk to some of their board members and vet who these people are. But like, all of our club boards say we should have done this 10 years ago. Yeah. The club is thriving now. They're all hundred out of a hundred thrilled that they did it. And so you think, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this story when everyone thinks golf management <laughs> companies are terrible, but all these clubs are thrilled. So it must be maturing in such a way where there are people who are really good at this. And maybe there are people who aren't as good at this and you probably should do your homework. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, and there's, it's a, it's a big market. I mean, You've got 25 plus now. I mean, you, you have any thoughts of kind of where you see this growing in terms of you folks? I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of run rate you guys think is, because obviously it takes some resources and, and time to digest a given club and set it all up and running and stuff. I mean, do you kind of have a sense of kind of what you think is a realistic way of proceeding in terms of what the run rate would be? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, we talk about it all the time. We've gotten bigger. We have a team with some bench strength at this point, and we can absorb three, four, five, six clubs a year pretty handily. We've done that before. It's really more about finding the right ones. And right. so I think our 25 will become 40 or 50 someday. We're not trying to be giant club corp. We're trying to be more of a boutique, higher-end club company that has generally, like you saw on our website and Westlake, right. generally nicer clubs in the major markets in the country. And there's probably 800 of those that we would love to be involved with someday. 
So at the rate of three or four a year, <laughs> I could be doing this a long time. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's really, it's really interesting. And it, it's got to be a very, it's got to be a lot of fun too. I mean, that, it's a lot of fun, right? You must enjoy, I mean, that sort of, you know, getting to know the people on the boards and sort of, you know, sort of explaining this to them and having the light bulb go off for them and seeing the advantages of this. I mean, that's got to be really cool. It's very fulfilling, Larry. And, and then to be able to solve these problems that all these clubs are having, because you and I love golf and clubs, and they all have a common set of challenges, and they're all incredibly frustrated when you talk to them. They have the same problem, and we can really help them. And like you said, the light goes off, they do it. It's, it's a little painful to go through such a transition for a club and that whole group of families. And then they do it and they're all thrilled. And a bunch of these guys are my golfing buddies now. Hey, let's go to a lotion when you're in Little Rock and I know a guy there and, and he saved his club. We helped him save his club. Everyone at his club is now thrilled that it happened. But man, when we were going through it and when he was going through it, it was challenging, right? And so it's like a, a really fulfilling journey to have all these happy people because you helped solve their club's issues. Super satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Well, this has been really, really interesting. I mean, I have to sort of say, I mean, and, you know, you and I have known each other a while. I kind of knew vaguely that you were involved in this. I didn't know the details and, um, I, and I was ignorant enough not to even appreciate the differences between, you know, what Troon, a Troon golf, which is again, this name I always hear because I run a, because they're so big um, versus what you guys do. And, and it is really very different, um, but I can totally see, you know, given that number of clubs and, the, and just the math and the finances and the debt and everything, um, you know, having the capital that you guys bring to it, um, that's like, got a, it's like an 800 pound weight off of a club. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's great talking to you, Larry. We should find some clubs to uh, to go visit. We should play <laughs> and uh, do more with this. Absolutely. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. This is awesome um, and uh, neat business. And uh, I wish you much su continued success. Yeah, great. Great time, Larry. Thanks. Thanks.